Logging was a strong, confident, career-oriented woman with her own business going before she got married to alerting, and so you're just a hyphen. (laughs) And welcome back to the Refactor Podcast, the show where we try and help ourselves and you suck just a little bit less each and every day. My name is Frank Cole. And from the brink of sanity, my name is Chris Tonkinson. And I suppose I should report that I'm I am re- reporting from the basement of the ivory tower as Frank Cole. It is customary. It is customary. Uh, this is uh, episode 102, recorded on April 21st, 2023. I really like your intro. Your intro's cool. The fade in. I'm enjoying Thank it. Thank you. Thank you. I got a correction right out right out of the gate here. I misspoke. Last week or the week before, uh, I said that uh, GitHub's Copilot was based on uh, the GPT LLM, and I, I'm incorrect. They actually have a different model called ah. Codex. Now, it is from OpenAI, right? It's the same company that puts out GPT, um, but it's actually a different Codex, uh, a different model called Codex uh, that is trained uh, in addition to whatever that voodoo that they do. Um, it's also trained on like everything in github um right oh. gotcha anyway okay is i it, wanted to correct I the not, record I have not played to maintain co- my to maintain my journalistic integrity of course <laughs> uh i uh uh i have not played with copilot much although i do see across the interwebs the the jokes about the code that it writes you know doing these these the sequence of if else statements going one through n to to you know display a a letter or a number or things like that is right, is, is it right. st- is it still that derpy? Uh, no, no. Yeah, you can get it to do dumb things. I'm not. I'm not suggesting oh, sure. you can that always it never get it does to do dumb, dumb things. But does it always do dumb things? I guess is the right question. No. Yeah. No. More often than not, it does something either precisely or very close to what you wanted it to do. Oh, cool. Um, I I just nice. I used it again. I f- I don't have the note in front of me. Uh, I I used it again last week. Uh, to write some code and it once again it did it did the right thing um very cool i'm continually impressed yeah now my next task is to try to get you you need a you need api access you need some other things that fit in uh but you can actually use copilot um not just in visual studio you can use copilot in other editing environments Mm -hmm. Uh, so i'm going to try to I may I I signed up for a GPT paid subscription. Yeah, we talked um, about that last time. I, I may I may give Copilot a try actually in editor just to see if how it cuz I tried it when it first came out it was kind of garbage like it was super <laughs> dinky. Okay. Um, but now it's actually it it looks better. Um I can speak for more for GPT than um than Codex because that's the one that I use more. Um mm-hmm. but at any rate, it it uh, yeah, it does a good job for me. Nice, cool. Uh, so I had uh, it, it's it's been a it, it's been, it's been a hot minute since we since we spoke. Uh, I wanted to talk about in a little more detail about simplicity. We've talked about that the last couple of weeks mm, as yeah. routinely. Uh, and the the notion of keeping things simple. Now, of course, we have said, "Oh, yeah, you 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 want to keep things simple." Uh, duh, and it goes without saying. Uh, or does it? Because bum, bum, bum. <laughs> I I don't have the drum. Yeah, I do. I do have a drum. There you button. go. There you go. <laughs> so we do have a drum button. 
there is an inclination. Would you agree that there's an inclination with engineers to make things a little more complicated than they have to be out the gate? No, I would not. I would not agree with that at all. That said, that does not sound like our kind. No, no, that's 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 not us. That's not us at all. Yeah. What the? Yeah. Yeah. Shock. Shock. Um, so it makes sense logically, but then we go and we do the the exact opposite. And so I, I wanted to talk a little bit more about how to do that in, in, in a concrete way, you know, like how you keep things simple and staying simple because the inclination will always be there to make things more complex. Yeah. Oh, I can do this. Oh, I can do this. And I, you know, we just build and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you're halfway, you've dug a hole halfway to China when really only you only needed a three foot pond for right. you know, some koi. So, I, I wanted to talk in, in sort of brass tacks uh, uh, about this. Um, so I'm going to actually start on the outside and, and work my way in uh, because I think that, you know, in, in the most compelling case, complexity kills opportunity. And what do I mean by that? I mean that if your product is complex to read, understand, learn, use, or to if your product is complex to sell, it's complex to buy. Uh, if interfacing with the company who supports it is in any way complex, if the uh, ongoing support of it is complex, any of these things, they are all very likely to derail more than one customer over the lifespan of your of your product, and so. If you need no other reason to keep things simple, take it as if you want to be successful in the market, keep things simple. Just flat out, just keep things simple because then that way things will be simple to talk about with your customers. It will be easier for them to say yes or no. That's fine. Get through the no's to get to the yes. And that will make you ultimately more successful. I think that sort of goes without saying, but I know, again, as engineers, we have a tendency not to really think about the externalities. We have a tendency to just think about, I'm building cool thing. You know, here's my greenfield development opportunity and, and so on and so forth. Um, so are you with me so far? Additional comments. I'm, I'm with you so far. If there's more, I'll, I'll, I'll wait. Kill hold. Okay. So, so that's, that's the, I I think that's the, the easy part of this, of this conversation where I think we run into trouble with, I can get an engineer to agree to that, where I think the, the pushback would start with is, okay, so we need to keep things simple for the customer. Well, that extends all the way into your internal processes within your code base, within your engineering team. So we want those outside things to be simple. And in order to continually reinforce the simplicity outside, we need to continually reinforce simplicity inside. And so put it another way, your engineering complexity, whether you think it's absolutely necessary or not, that has a downstream effect on the complexity of your product as a customer will experience it 
And so you need to keep things as simple as possible as well. And I think that's where I would lose a lot of energy. So hold on, hold on a second. What are you talking about? Why in the heck would my overly complicated code review process with 52 live in production branches, why in the world would that have any direct impact on any given customer at any at any time? I feel like that's where people would start to push back. But I do think it's no less true. I mean, you can take the 52 branch, 52 production branch option there, which I, I have actually seen one of these before where they have just a, they actually have multiple live root branches. Yeah. For, I mean, painful. I think I think two is bad, but I've seen I, I have not seen 52. I have seen secondhand reports of upwards of 40 or 50 of these of these root branches. But I've, I've seen, I think four was the big one. I, eh, five. It was five that I saw. And why, why would that production, why would that five production branch create complexity? Well, I mean, you, why do you have five production branches? Well, you obviously have different things going well, on. Well, Frank, well, Frank, you don't understand that we had a client and they were our first client and then we got a second client and they wanted something slightly different and we didn't we didn't have time to, to fix it out and parse it and then abstract it and make an interface so that we could pass in an option from the environment to control which one went to where. So we had to just fork the code base and then we got busy with post-production support and then... <gasps> <sighs> yeah, I, pretty I, much that. Yeah, there's, that not, there's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> So, so I wanted to start that. So complexity kills deals. Complexity from the inside works its way out. And, that, and that's where I wanted to st start digging in with keeping your own stuff as, as, as simple as possible. Because even situations that seem 100% internal, like the number of production branches that you have as a completely contrived example, has downstream effects. I, I actually like the hypothetical that you played out there. Now we've got, you know, five production branches for five different customers managing things in five different ways. Well, what happens when you have a bug in one, you have a bug in the others, and, you know, how, how do you actually well, merge them? Well, that's easy, Frank, because you just create a patch and then you apply that, you cherry pick it out into the other branches. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you have to ask what happens when there's a conflict because... Yep. There was a change in that other branch because little Jimmy came along and didn't realize that there's a stable branch, which we have to keep everything rebased onto. And so I, it's just, it's the path to madness. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's turtles all the way down. Yes. And that does have ultimately a customer facing effect because if your patch management in any way breaks, well, now the customer has an adverse experience due to that complexity. I am very confident that we could take any hypothetical scenario and I challenge the audience to send us one where you think otherwise that would not, you know, I have this complicated internal process and it has no direct impact on, you know, my product, my customer base, my success. I, 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 I roundly reject that notion. Send me your example. If you've got one, I would love to hear it. In the meantime, I'm going to assume that to be the case. And so we have to as engineers, keep things as simple as possible, which means in a certain sense, fighting our natural inclination to be additive. Well, I can do this other thing. I can do this thing. And so now I can do all of this other stuff. And like I said before, you know, tunnel to China. Instead of doing that, build the, the way that you fight that uh, natural inclination 
is to build for what you need today and to steadfastly not think about tomorrow. I mean, excuse me, build for today. Think about tomorrow, but build for today is the, is the phrase that I'm, that I'm trying to get at here. And it's okay to think about the future. You, know, you, you kind of have to see where you're going. It's okay to look ahead a little bit, but you don't actually take those future steps. You, you build for what is right in front of you today. And that's not going to be whatever it is tomorrow or the next day, because that is by definition a different day. It's going to look different and that's okay. That's what refactoring is for. And that's part of the reason why we use it as the title of the show. It's an iterative, uh, it's, it's a, a repeated iterative process of fix it for today, fix it for today, fix it for today. And each one of those todays was yesterday's tomorrow. I'm having back to the future vibes now, but you see what I'm saying. And that I think is, is the real rub. I think that's the part that, that engineers have a, have a real hard time with is, is trying to keep that, that narrow focus on what I actually need to get done today and, and steadfastly refusing to build what they, what they need tomorrow. Even when it makes some semblance of sense, like, yes, I know I'm going to get to that thing. Well, if you don't have a definitive date that you're going to get to that thing, say next Tuesday, I don't think it's necessarily worth it because you don't, if, if, if it's nebulous, oh, well, in the future someday, I'm, I, I, I hear this all the time. I'm sure you do too. Well, you know, at some point in the future, we have plans to do X, Y, Z. And so, you know, we will at some point in the future do this thing. Okay, well, at some point in the future, then you do that thing. Until then, that doesn't mean squat today. And I hear a lot of technical decisions that get made based on, well, at some point in the future, we will dot, dot, dot. And that, that line of thinking, that's the red flag to me. As soon as you're doing things for at some point in the future, stop, back up a step, cut off right there. That's what you need. There's, there's something because the lack of like the, the complexity the, in my mind, the complexity, even if it's farther down in the proverbial business stack, right? It's not the, what you're presenting to the end user, but it's some internal process, like your, you know, your trivialized example of the code review with with all the steps, right? Mm-hmm. Even that, it it betrays an underlying challenge of focus, like at the organizational level, right? If you, it, we all like like. DevSec, biz tech, whatever, fin ops uh, is great. <laughs> all, all that's wonderful, right? And, and we should have an environment where people are integrated to the point where we're not just throwing code over the proverbial wall, right? And that, and that kind of takes, uh, like that's at every level, right? As there's stuff where accounting may throw something across the wall to legal or like that's not just a technology analogy anymore right yeah, but so in this case you're having, talking about throwing code over the wall to future chris to, kind of to the administrators well no I'm, I'm actually talking like like all right so we're throwing it over the wall I'm, I'm getting i'm muddling my language here my point is we have devops why is devops a thing because software developers and sysadmins were not meeting in the middle and so devops is hey let's shift our mindset and work together instead of against each other huh but that's a, that's we're now we're geniuses, right? That's the mm-hmm. whole point. The problem I have, not, not a problem. Problem implies that like we shouldn't be doing DevOps in that way. The issue that I have, the, 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 the concern 
right? The thing that I see happening is that in our efforts to better integrate in that way, we lose, and I'm going to use software development analogies here to explain this. What we lose is the cohesion and loose coupling at the team level. And that makes everything more complicated, right? Because all of a sudden, mm, if every, okay. if I'm ex, we're C now, if I'm exposing my, my private members to all of my friends, right? At the team level, uh, I, I, everybody sees all of the complexity of all of the internal workings of all of the other teams. That's going to create cognitive load, right? That's going to create dissonance. That's going to cause friction. It's going to cause people to overthink. They have too much information. It's going to cause them to start to overthink everything and overcomplicate everything. So there is something to be said for, okay, <clears throat> like that's this other team's business. They're going to tell me what part of what they're doing I need to know. Mm -hmm. And then I'm going to respect that there's stuff over there that I don't know that I don't need to know. Right. And so I'm not, I'm, I'm a huge fan of, and I'm saying this and it, I, I don't want to come across as like speaking out of both sides of my mouth because I'm a huge fan of transparency. Uh, and I think most organizations, they, most people think about the org chart and the flow of chain of command, like the wrong way. But there is a point where like, no, we have separate teams and they should be to a certain degree decoupled and they should be cohesive within themselves. And each level of management needs to be responsible for focusing on what the rest of the organization, what the inputs and outputs need to be, right? They need to focus on that interface. I'm using a lot of software terms here, but like I think mm -hmm. it, in my mind, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. So you focus on optimizing the interfaces. And then what happens is anytime you have any amalgamation of teams come together to solve a problem, the interface is defined, the interface is simplified. And so you don't have all of that extra cruft getting in everybody else's head. Like if I'm the manager of the software team, you're the manager of the security team, we have to meet to solve a problem together. We're doing DevOps. Like we, we know what's going on. We're, we're on the same team. We're rowing in the same direction. Uh, but I am not actively clouded by knowing all of the intricate details of what your team is into, right? Mm -hmm. I'm trusting that you're representing to me the things that are material and vice versa. And so I think in this strive for openness and transparency and just put everything, you know, put everything in GitHub, like that's, that's great. And I'm not saying we should stop doing those things. Not all of that information is relevant to everybody else all of the time. And I think that's where you can sometimes get into, because what happens, and you see this all the time, let's say you get in and, and let's, let's go past that for a point, right? For whatever reason, somebody overcomplicated something. And why, why would some low-level thing that's complicated matter to the end user? Well, we overcomplicated it. We thought about it for too long. We solved future problems. By the time we ship that to production, there's a whole backlog of other stuff that we haven't done yet. So there's a delay somewhere, right? Whether that's hurting business development, it's hurting sales, it's hurting operations, whether it's hurting uh, customers directly because we're, we're negligent on some other things we needed to do, whether we're behind the times, like, you overcomplicate something, it takes, if you ever ship it, by the time you do, you're going to wind up cutting corners on the next three projects because you spent so much time making something perfect mm -hmm. rather than just getting it out the door. And, mm -hmm. and I don't know, that's, that's where my, like you're saying this and I'm thinking like, why does that low level stuff matter? Again, it, it betrays an underlying lack of focus. And it's, if, if you ever successfully ship the thing, you're going to be late on other stuff and then quality is going to wind up. Suffering. Well, actually, it's interesting that you say focus um, because I actually, you're right. 
but I, I've seen it go in the other direction too, where, because again, engineers doing kind of engineering things get hyper-focused. You know, they see like there's that spec, there's, there's damn spec and it's not perfect. It's a blemish on my otherwise pristine mm-hmm. universe. And I have to fix that damn thing because it's driving yeah. me mad. It's like a splinter in your mind. Mm-hmm. You're channeling my inner Morpheus here, you know, break the matrix kind of, kind of vibes in your head. It's some engineers have those kinds of reactions to finding things that could be better or are in some way not perfect. And those are, um, those are, uh, one of the, um, contributing factors to this. And so, I like I like your focus, but I also want to uh, call out the need for um, thinking about the other way too. Like sometimes, you know, lack of focus can cause this, but too much focus, hyper focus, can cause this too. Yeah. And it depends on the personality. So I also wanted to go back to you. You said something interesting because I th- I felt like you were going off in another direction. You actually started talking. You took this simplicity thing and then you did it a uh, a metaphor. I think it was just like a metaphor around management. And the way, you know, having the teams and the interface and the structures. And, and so you actually went in a totally different direction on me there. And I felt like I felt like there might be more to explore in that space. I was wondering how your head got there in talking about the simplicity. And then you, you started thinking about, well, team and structure, yeah. org structure stuff. Yeah, I, I got I got wrapped up in my own thoughts there. But what I. That's OK. I'm what, just curious. Came, it actually was an interesting no, yeah, kind of segue. Is, is kind well, of what, what came. What came to mind was like, what came to mind was this. When I started thinking about the focus thing, so why does the focus matter even for low-level details? Well, because low-level details aren't focused. Um, if there's too much confusion, that will propagate through the rest of the organization, right? How is it, if, if you and I don't fully understand the state of the world, when our boss comes into the room, how are we going to explain it to them in a satisfactory way, right? That's mm-hmm. just, that seems obvious to me. Um, how I got there was like, oh yeah, because like there's detail that my team has that you or he doesn't really need, right? Our boss uh, doesn't really need. Sure. Um, it matters, right? If somebody needs it, it's there. We have it, but I'm not going to bring it up. Is is I guess the point, right? Um, and I'm trusting me and you as managers in this fake company, uh, trusting each of us to know what is relevant when and to bring those facts to light during the conversation is appropriate, mm-hmm. right? And so then I started to think about it as if, like, well, we are all classes in some service, ah, right? I where okay. where the class the class interface the, the interface that the class implements decides what it looks like when you talk to that class, and it hides all of the private state. There's a lot going on in a class that you don't see if you're just a if you're just a uh, a consumer of the class, right? Um, and if you think about each each of these teams, departments, whatever you want to call in your organization is kind of objects. They have an interface. That interface is the manager. They they kind of share what they think is appropriate, what they expose to the rest of the world, hide most of the detail. That's when I started thinking like, uh, that's when I started thinking like managers, because I, I, I maybe took that class analogy too far, uh, mm-hmm. maybe not far enough. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know. All abstractions are leaky and I, I didn't, I, I couldn't forgot in the moment whether I had taken that one too far. I don't think I did. No, um, no, I don't think that, so. That's where that's where my that's how I skipped up to management because I started gotcha. thinking about oh well if you ex- 
if you extend the analogy, this is how it looks. And then I started wondering whether you could extend it that far. And <laughs> all right, I don't want to go down further down the the. Hold on a second. That that definitely deserves a. Oh yeah, definitely a sidebar. I, I, and I don't want to go tumbling too much further down it, but I will take the opportunity to shamelessly plug that your analogy calls out the uh, absolute essentialness of uh, trust and delegation. You know, mm-hmm. you, you have delegated in your, in your class analogy here, you know, the, 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 the tasks are, you know, are contained inside of that object and you as an externality to it, you know, in this case, a manager, you don't really care what's going on inside. All you care about is here's the input and here's what I expect to get back out. And what happens between A and B is irrelevant. And the only way that's, that's really the only way for true effective management to happen and as we have said repeatedly before, the vast, 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 vast majority of managers and companies have a natural tendency to not do that, which actually makes everything they do run worse. And so I don't want to go, I don't want to go further down there, but I'll take any opportunity to call that one out because I see that as probably the number one problem, I think, in, and in it most is, organizations is trust and delegation. Uh, but, it, but, but it is trust and delegation. Hey, yeah. you're going to go manage these details. And yeah. I need to trust that I need to trust that you are going to do that correctly, that the details will be managed appropriately, and that when you have information that is relevant, you'll know it and then you'll say it. And mm-hmm. that's I mean, it, yep. it really does come down to trust so it, much of it. It really does. All right. So coming back to this, the, the simplicity argument, I'm trying to get dealing with this on the, uh, you know, at, on the engineering level, you know, we've sort of justified made an effort to justify why you should do this inside of your life everywhere all the time. I want to talk a little bit about the how, because this is another area that I think engineers trip up on. Because even good-intentioned engineers who recognize the real value, everybody likes simplicity, but the ones that really grok it, you know, really get the, yes, this has massive benefit to me and the company and the customer. Even the ones who get that, will still sometimes fall into the trap of trying to maintain that simplicity, but still over committing. And so I wanted to talk briefly about how, what simplicity looks like inside of a, of a project. And that's a very generic definition but I also have a very generic answer that I think we could apply in it's, a menagerie of yes, ways. Yes, I, I, can, I can answer this just right on the face of it. I know exactly what simplicity looks like in a project that makes it successful every time, regardless of externalities. Git, Rails, and Vim. That is all you need. <laughs> and then Gosh. you're done. That's it. That's it. That is the, that is the solution, folks. There, there are no Those other are technologies. That's it. Those are the ingredients. You need nothing else. Is there a specific flavor of Git that would be required you, here? Does it have to be Git no, Lab, you just, GitHub? You, you smoke those at 240 for 10 to 12 hours <laughs> and you're good to go. In absent that sage advice, in any project of any type, the key, I think, is to fight the tendency to address every single what if every single what if edge case? Yeah. Well, what if this happens? Well, what if that happens? I'm not saying you don't have edge cases that you have to deal with. Of course you do. What I'm saying is cut yourself off at the snowflakes. 
for 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 some of our our less experienced listenership, I will I will say this: What if this happens? What if that's it? Then stuff breaks, and that's okay sometimes. That's right. I, like you, <laughs> like you cannot code every possibility. You just then something will break, and you know what? Then it then you come into a couple of just like routine, like so routine. It's almost it almost feels wrong saying. That's why cycle time matters. Because mm-hmm. when something breaks, you need to be able to fix it, get confident that that fix fixed that and didn't break anything else, and then get that up into production smoothly, right? I, like you, you, you learn stuff. Yeah, is what happens. You. Yep, that's I, it. I totally agree. And there are, I, I think there's a couple ways you can quantify it. You know, I use. The I term- feel like I keep drinking. I keep drinking from my seltzer. I feel like I should like go to the side. You know, we're sponsored. Sponsored by. by- oh, right, like. Ugh. Seltzer. I thought better of you. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. (laughs) No, that's true. I didn't. I I used to think it was hella gross, honestly. And then like a couple years, like a year or two ago, one day for some reason there was some flavor and I was like, oh, I'll give it a try. No, I I still think it's hella gross, but I drink it. (laughs) (laughs) But I it's the same reason I use Vim. So other people see me doing it. I like this is well documented at this point. This is how I operate. Folks. Hello, fellow humans. I, Vim and its uh, bubbly goodness. And then <laughs> it's it's Neo Vim, if you must know. Oh uh, gosh, oh, just, just stop. <laughs> just no. Just actually, stop. there's. We're gonna come back to. Actually, no. This ties perfect segue. We're gonna come back to Vim. So let me okay. let me unsidebar, and then we will go back to Vim. Okay. Well, here, let me pass you. There you go. So you want to cut off at, at the at the sequence of edge cases. Okay, well how how do you how do you do that? I mean, one way is recognizing what you're doing when you're doing it. You know, if you're chasing snowflakes, if it's a if it's a really you know give if it's a rare edge case, definition of rare again, gonna kind of you know, gonna kind of vary. You're also gonna to want to think about you know potential blast radius of of the impact of if this thing breaks. You know, if you're gonna lose a million dollars, yeah, that's probably a case you want to take care of. If you're going to lose mm-hmm. $0 or, you know, your smallest customer is going to send you a sternly worded email at 2 a.m., you know, like there's every project's got those metrics that you can look at to sort of determine it. You can mm-hmm. also think about the number of ifs that you're chaining together. If this and this and this and this, then now all hell breaks loose. Okay, well, what's the, 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 what's the cumulative percentile chance of all of those things being true of those planets aligning. That's another way to think about it. But those are kind of, those are all hit or miss. The thing that I like to do is to actually jump to the end and work backwards. And what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is uh, you and I came up with a concept uh, when we were doing product, deep product development of flailing. And we've talked about this mm-hmm. a little bit on the show before, but but we yeah. haven't. Uh, I don't think we've really delved into this. Hey, phrasing. So fla- yeah, I don't think I don't think we've flailed on the I show. I don't think we've talked about. Don't that. think we've covered flailing, and I, and I want to cover flailing. So what flailing means is to flagrantly fail out. Flailing, flagrant failing, flailing. And the idea here is okay. I can't. I'm I'm not going to catch and handle uniquely every single possible scenario. There are some that I know. There's a literal infinite of possibilities that I don't know about yet, known and unknowns. So instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to 
I'm going to build for all of these situations one giant net underneath. Now, this is going to look different depending on the product and what it does and all that. So I'm going to use a web use a web application as a simplistic example. It's probably also one of the most common. So the idea here is that you would go to, say, the top-level main method function of your application. Again, I'm, I'm really contriving and simplifying here. It's got a main app that run that does app, okay? Wrapping that does, I'm going to have an exception try-catch block. and it's going to catch anything that, 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 that errors out. And then I'm going to handle all those errors in the exact same way, which is going to be abrupt and loud. So the customer is going to see an error page because you want them to know that whatever they were doing, it didn't work. That's, I think that is absolutely important. This is not a thing that you hide, okay? Your thing broke. You want your customer to know that so that they can, be, they can alert you. But really, the other part of this that should happen is that error, you should hear about that. There are a ton of error catching and processing platforms now. This is, I mean, this is built into pretty much any cloud-based application now. You know, you can do logging and alerting on, on errors inside the application. There's a zillion ways you could handle it. But the point is, when that error happens, somebody gets notified in some proactive manner. And so now you've got a net underneath of all of the possibilities. And it's not super graceful. It's, you know, like the thing stopped working, but the customer knows it stopped working. So they're not left hanging, which is great. And you're notified that the thing stopped working so that you can immediately jump in and try and solve it. Those are the two most important elements of this. And so with that in place, well, now Every single time you hit one of these things, every single time you get a flail, you go ahead and you fix it. One less flail. You're going to, you know, and that may lead to, you know, a bug fix. It may lead to more specific error handling logic for that specific scenario. Maybe it is recoverable. And now that you understand the scenario or more specifically, now that you have actually directly encountered the scenario live in production, that's the key here. You have a concrete example of a real thing that really happened and you can build to solve it. And that's really the point here because I think what, where a lot of, where future code goes wrong is it is trying to predict the future. Well, you're no better at predicting the future than, you know, those, you know, than, than a soothsayer or, you know, palm readers or those, 1-800-PSYCHIC or 1-900-PSYCHIC lines from the 1990s, okay? Like, you can't do it. Sometimes you're going to be right, but a whole lot of times you're going to be wrong. And then you're going to have to, so you're, then you're going to have to double back and clean up the mess you made guessing about what the future was going to look like and then build for the future. And what I am suggesting is with a process like this, you can build as reasonably reliably as you can today. You have a safety net under everything else. And then when you actually run into those things, you actually have evidence. You have an evidentiary based process by which to actually build. And now you're not actually, so you're not guessing. And now yeah. you're actually building for today. This is, you know, this is, you know, tomorrow has become today. I, I, I see the problem and I am building specifically for the thing that I have seen. And so now I'm not guessing and I'm not writing future code. 
this is the process by which I have found to make applications, I'll say nearly as bulletproof as you possibly can. I think this is the definitive way to do it. Is it perfect? No, because nothing is perfect. Software, by definition, written by human hands, is completely imperfect. So it's never, you're never going to catch everything, but this is, the, I, I think, the most reliable way to handle those situations. It keeps you from writing future code. It keeps you from overcomplicating your life, overcomplicating your customers' lives, and allows you to the opportunity to actually handle the, the uh, evolving scenarios as they come up. And, and then you're not guessing. You're actually directly handling something that you know for absolute certainty happened because you caught it, because your system was live in production and something broke and it broke in such a way and you're able to track that down and then you fix it. And that's it. So the opposite of this is having, having log files and having log streams and having observability systems and having metrics collection and having performance monitoring agents and having everything in warn mode and then not looking at the damn dashboards and then having so much information that it all becomes useless mm-hmm. right that's one of the i mean that's like straight up that's one of the things that that we struggle with uh you know in in my day to day is not that we don't have any information not so much of it, You've too much. Some of it's harder to get to, right? And and part of the problem is that is that some of the most important information is too hard to collect, is too hard to get to. Um, but it's not a problem with there not being available data, right? The problem is either there's there's too much because it hasn't been pruned, uh, is there's too much because we actually collect the same thing in one or two or three different places, and so then there's duplicate to sift through, uh, or there's too much simply because uh, there are things that are legitimate warning signs going unaddressed that we're not paying yeah. attention to it. And so, um, you know, and that's not, and that's not unique to my organ. Like this is a, this is a common problem that you, that you see. Oh yeah, we have, you know, so if you have to go in and there's some kind of uh, information security incident and you need to go in with your forensic team and figure out what happened, the data is there. You can figure it out. If you're really targeted and you know exactly what to look for, you can go and you can narrow it down. Um, but for run-of-the-mill operational questions, like, ah, this doesn't seem like it's performing the way it should. What could be going wrong? Flood. Flood. Right? Of, That's of, just, yeah. So yeah, your signal-to-noise ratio is crazy, which is why I I like the and flailing now, thing. Clar- it's a, it's to, an, clarify, okay. to clarify, because it's it's been a while since we've talked about flailing. If I recall correctly, when when we used to do this as, at, under our company, our posture was that we would flail in everything but production. Well, I mean, you had to, are you, I mean, are you suggesting, are you suggesting that flailing is the, is the posture across the board? I think, okay. So maybe we might be getting a little nuance here. I'm not saying don't show the customer an elegant error screen, but mm-hmm. don't let me rephrase it. Don't let the customer hang in perpetuity mid process on something that has overtly died. Like that yeah. customer needs to know the thing you were trying to do yeah. is dead. It didn't work. Now you can handle that gracefully and redirect them and restart the process. I'm not, I'm not, you do all that. Like by all means, do all that. But like bad thing happened, cut it off. Um, as far as in production versus uh, development, I think that the um, 
the mode of notification would ha- would be the same to the developer. Hey, bad thing happened. But the severity and how it's handled changes. So when I'm in development, I'm, I'm developing. I'm going to break shit. It's going to happen. I don't need to be notified the same way that all of the stuff is breaking. And so where that notice lives is going to change. So in, using our contrived web development example, the browser on my desktop is probably sufficient. Just show me a big mm-hmm. error message with a big, you know, show me the backtrace of what happened. That's probably good enough. I don't need a log of it. I don't need it to go into my Splunk. I don't, <laughs> I don't need any of that stuff. That's, that's fine. In production, you're going to want that to be more, more permanent. So the permanency is the thing that changes and the, the perceived severity. Something breaking in development, not severe. It's development. Things are supposed to break. Something breaking in production, more severe. Like that's something we really need to look at. And so it's like this sliding scale. And you could add in there, we talk about development production, you could add in QA staging and, and you could actually adjust relative how loud and severe that thing is as you go along there. You know, so if it's a QA and, it's a, and it breaks, okay, important for the dev team to know, alert the dev team. If it's in, if it's in uh, customer acceptance, so a customer is actually looking at it and it breaks, okay, you're going to want the QA team to know and the dev team to know and that customer's support rep. Bigger audience, a little more severe. <laughs> it's if it, production. I want, ev- I want you my want everybody to know. Exactly. <laughs> you want everybody to know. You want everybody to know. So, um, yeah. so there's that. I, you, you, ta- you actually stumbled on something I hadn't even thought about, but um, really, really good of you. That you, you talked about this year. Uh, it's not the fact that right now, it's not the fact that you don't have the information. It's that you have so much of it and f- sifting yeah. signal to noise. It can be really tough. Flailing is intended to try and solve that as well because. Hey, you care about this. <laughs> you care about this. It's not just that you care about this. It's that you here, and this is the key. You set that up soup to nuts. You know where that event started and you know where it wound up. The biggest problem I have found with the, with the mountain of the, the thing that has caused the most signal to noise ratio is that we now have lots of tools that have lots of automated logging and monitoring and alerting for you. And we naturally, oh my gosh, look at all this stuff that I can watch and and I can, all these buttons, I can knobs and turn. And what ends up happening is you over, you inadvertently turn the fire hose on yourself. And you didn't All the time this happens. And you didn't actually think about, you don't even have a total cognizant awareness of where each of those individual alerts comes from. And so what I'm actually suggesting, if I, if we macro, you know, we zoom this out 30,000 foot view from the, the notion of failing and simplicity to thinking about just our, our, the way we handle logging and alerting. If you can't, just like flailing, if you can't trace each one of those little sensors and their related alert outputs, if you can't see that whole trail, if it does not, if it's not crystal clear to you where it is and what it goes off on, when, how, and why, turn it off. You don't need it. It's not going to help you. It's going to make your life harder. Yeah, and some of these systems, they almost, they almost promote suck, you know, just let hoover up all the data, hoover up all the bits, 
and we'll help. We'll AI will sort it for you. <sighs> yeah, but uh, does it really? I don't. You know, it, it, like if you don't have anything set up, like just take a simple example, right? Let's say you have nothing, right? You have you have your cat blog. Uh, it's it's a Rails app, right? You of have course, your cat blog of running. It's a Rails app. Of course, it's a Rails app. Uh, yeah. Um, so you've got your cat blog, it's running, and you have no instrumentation whatsoever. And you say, well, I'm worried about underlying infrastructure, right? Because that's it's gone down in the past because the disk filled up because of the cached images and uh, CPU bound because something got into an infinite loop. And I'm worried about the infrastructure. And so uh, I'm going to put an agent on. The agent can just hoover up all this. No, no, stop right there. CPU, memory, network, disk, done. That's it. Start with that. Start there. Start there. Yep. Start there. And mm -hmm. then add things. Don't just turn on the fire hose because it will quickly. It's same thing with like sucking up the app log and and syslog and dmessage and all of these things. It's just it's you're not actually going to be able to do anything with the information. You're just paying for storage. Yeah. And and if you're on like a data dog or a Splunk or somebody, oh, you are man. paying a lot for that privilege. I heard I heard a company. Uh, this is guess. Think of the biggest annual bill you can think of for Splunk. What do you think that would be? A company for their unified Splunk implementation. What do you think is the most expensive? It's, that's a weird one because it's pretty easy. Like I could see, I could see a seven-figure bill annually for that. Yeah. Tr yeah. Try an eight-figure bill. Eight what? Eight-figure bill. What? Approaching nine figures. What? Yes. I Are mean, you kidding like, me? It's it, 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 insane. You know, insane. 20 to $70 million a year in, in Splunk fees. It's I would, I would, I, okay. I would, I would not. I was prepared for something in the low to mid seven figures, right? If I uh -huh. was like, hey, it's probably at least a million dollars because you're mm -hmm. bringing it up, right? That would be that would be a healthy bill. Sure, sure. Five million, that would be a lot to me, right? <laughs> you're like, you're like eight. And I'm like, ah! You're like, oh, God. Oh, but you're, hey. I love the goat. I'm starting, to, I'm, starting to get, I'm starting to get the meat sweats. I haven't this, even eaten yet. This is, uh, I am convinced at this point, Splunk has the same business model as planet fitness. I don't know if I've talked. Mm. We, I think we've talked. Yeah. About this oh yeah. We've, we've we talked about, about planet yeah. fitness. Okay. So that's for, a hobby horse for you, but it yeah, is it is exactly it's a, that it's model. It's such a great story. There's I, on the one hand, you set it up, you forget it. And guess what? Guess what? Executives know about it once a year when there's an outage and we have to go into Splunk because that's the only place that the data lives that we need that, you know, and then that, that's, well, there's that's a, it. There's a, there, there's, there's almost a crack addiction to it because it's, Okay, I've got this system that can ingest all this data. So I'm going to ingest all the data. All, all, all the, the data. Which data? All I'm run the a, datas. I'm going to run an NSA style PRISM program in my data center and just hoover up all. Yeah, 100%. That's, that's, that's pretty much what's that's pretty much what's happening. And so that's what they make their money on because you you do it because you can. Are they using I, I mean, are they, are they using so let's average it out. I said 20 to 70, call it, you know, 35 mil. Okay. Like, are they using 35 mil of Splunk? No freaking way. 
No, no. freaking way are you I, getting 35 no, mil out of that. I don't. That is all CYA security blanket because I can bull crap. It's, I don't care if I, I don't care what you are or who you are. Uh, you, you're the, the United States government. You're not getting $35 million worth of data out of, out of this. was a private, this was a private company. I will say that. This private, was a private I'm company. just saying the biggest, most complicated, most obtuse and stupidly managed thing I could think of in the moment. Yeah. I no, no, do I get not it. think you're getting $35 million. I would be curious. I'd be curious. Like this would be, I think at that scale, the metric you have to ask is, how much salary are you paying to work Splunk? Yeah. What is your salary? Yeah. So, so how this many people- do, It's a complicated how many people, platform. How many people do you have where their job is, is Splunk. Splunk? I'm a Splunk not, engineer not necessarily, for XYZ not, Corp. Not even necessarily like getting the data to it. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about, you're talking about actionable insights. The $35 million, if I'm a business owner, the $35 million is not so I can send you data. The $35 million is not so you can store data. The $35 million is so that you can give me insights when I need what I need, right? Mm -hmm. So yeah, right. How, how much salary are you paying people to get insights? And what are those actually worth to you? Because if you do that analysis, there is no way in hell it is worth $35 million. And how effective- It is impossible. How effective could they be? Could they still be if Splunk wasn't in the ecosystem? You know, they'd have to go to maybe some a couple of different sources for for logs and then you know build well, results, but what if, compile but results what if, themselves right? or something. What in a world <laughs> where you paid a tenth of that for bandwidth and storage mm -hmm. and set something up with a with a uh, Grafana dashboard? Yeah, and you had two and you had two people even. Just creating <laughs> dashboards and just watching all, the, that all day. They just dashboards, just dashboard all the things. I, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> and how much of that could you? Because the 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 multiplicative effort. Um, another hobby horse of mine being the the reports. Reports are stupid easy, and and their return on investment is huge. Uh, and you can you could hire somebody to do just reports, uh, manually and it would pay for itself and it would pay, and it would pay for itself way more efficiently than I think a lot of these existing, um, yeah. these existing and platforms. I, so, and, and I'm clouding the issue even, even a little bit more, but your, your point is valid. There is no, there is no unique insight that Splunk is providing for eight figures a year. No, it's, it's just, it's not, it's a, it's security blanket. And it, it all boils back to this signal to noise stuff that, you know, the ability, like I, I, I can have data, so I, I must have, will the data. have data. I will have, I will have the, I will have the data. All right. So total sidebar on Splunk there. I did going back to the simplicity and talking about, um, you know, if you don't need a signal shooting yourself in the foot, yeah. <laughs> if you don't need a signal, you should turn it off. You should understand the entire sequence. I do want to call out one caveat there before I get yelled at about it. And that is, Oh, well, what are you saying? We should just turn off uh, until I need the logs. I should just turn off all the logs. Well, guess what? As soon as something <laughs> bad happens, now I don't have any logs to look at. What Shut do you do now, smarty pants? Shut up, neckbeard. That's that's not what I am suggesting. I'm I'm actually trying to draw a distinction between alerts and logging. Yeah. These used yeah, to be different two things. different things. We talk they, about oh, them. Now, oh, now it's- That's where- you just hit on it. How, how does Splunk and Datadog make money? Because there's not a difference anymore. Because when you hear, right, you don't hear, you don't hear them as individual terms now. You hear logging and alerting. It's almost like there's a hyphen between the two, between the, yeah. the logging mm -hmm. dash and dash alerting. It's almost a single unified term. 
These are not unified things and we don't need to think logging, about them that Logging way. was a strong, confident, career-oriented woman with her own business going before <laughs> she got married to alerting. And so you're just a hyphen. Like, <laughs> I got that analogy is just, you know what? Hold on. <laughs> I, 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 that, that, that one was just, that was just delightful. Very true. And I'm trying to draw that distinction and it's yeah. okay. So it's okay to just have logs because then when crap breaks and your very finely tuned flailing alerts go off, then you go dig through the damn logs and yeah. you do your searches and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and before the hate mail comes in about, and also about like metric aggregation, cause that does, that does matter for things too. It does. Before, the, yeah, not saying before it all the hate mail, you know, if you've got hate mail, send it to slash dev slash null. Um, but that stuff matters too. But the, the way that you handle those two types of information is very different. And what you do with them is very different. How long you need to retain them is very mm -hmm. different. There's separate yeah. things. The alerts themselves, I don't think you can just throw uh, a gigabit stream of all of your corporate data into an AI system and trust it to give you the insights you actually need. I mean, that's, maybe, I, that's, that's the, I, the... Hey, maybe 10 years from now, that'll be the case. Like, I'm legitimately open-minded that, that there can be a system that does that pretty well. Um, the, the point is, you don't need it. The point is, you can focus on yeah, the mean. things you actually care about and build those a lot cheaper, a lot quicker, a lot more reliably and know that they work yeah. and you don't need to go down this rabbit hole. Talk about, are we okay to segue? I don't know if you, I don't want to step I'm, on. No, no, I'm, I, I'm, I'm good. Uh, I did want to okay. point out you're, you're really, what you're describing to me sounds like the data lake uh, product concept yeah. that we have heard in recent years. And, yeah. and that, that, that's not a new thing. The AI component of it is new. So, I mean, even those? just prism, yeah. There you go. Just mm. prism all of the traffic that hits your edge router into S3, and then we'll sort through it for you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. What, what's the point of this? Simplicity, right? There's another angle where simplicity can, where if you don't, if you don't understand how to keep things simple and you don't understand focus, it will come back to bite you. And Brand Molinar is living this right now. So Vim is my text editor of choice, right? As we uh, learned not earlier, yes. Right. Not, not because it's better, but because I like other people to think that I'm the kind of gentleman who would use Vim. Classic um, neckbeard thinking, yes. Oh, yeah. Exactly right. Exactly right. Uh, I, I cargo all the cults. So uh, Vim 9 came out, uh, I think it was middle end of last year. It's, it's Maybe it's not even been a year. Vim 9 comes out, right? And Vim has been around for, I don't know, 30 years at this point, say, maybe more. Do we mean um, Vim 9 as in major version 9, or do you mean 0.9? Because... That's how these open oh, no, source no, no, projects no. tend to yeah. work. <laughs> no, it's been actually out for 30 Vim years. We're up to we're almost at one point. We're out. Almost almost out of beta. <laughs> uh, just as soon as Gmail's production, then we will be. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. So so the way that you you can do so Vim is Vim, and it's actually very great if you if you've not used it, go tinker with it. Uh, but the the way that you interact with Vim from a configuration, Vim is highly configurable, and so. Uh, you have config files that you can write to customize your your Viming, and the way you do this, and this is a holdover from the what Vim was based off of, which was an editor, what was called Vi, which was based off of X, which was based off of based off based. So there's some legacy there. So when Vim was created, there's our, we're gonna we're gonna introduce Vim script, and there I think there was some compatibility with previous popular editors, and so you've got a legacy concern, and so there's this Vim script, and that's what you use to configure, customize Vim, right, to okay. your liking. Vim 9 comes along. We said, well, Vim script isn't doing so well these days. 
they made a breaking change from VimScript in eight to nine. A breaking change. Now, okay. breaking change. So mm-hmm. what do we do? And this is why NeoVim has been out for a while. NeoVim is, it would actually, it's a fork of Vim and they just took a bunch of the cruft and deleted it. They just rimraft a bunch of stuff that nobody cares about. Focused the product a little more, got it a little more efficient at, at certain tasks and then modernized a couple of things. One of the things that they did is they said, we're not going to use Vim. They, I think it supports Vim script, um, but configuration is done with Lua. Gamers of the audience will know Lua. It's a very simplistic programming language. It's used like heck and everywhere. Very simple, very easy to understand, but Turing complete, right? You can do all the things in Lua. Uh, It's widely supported. It's got tooling. It's got, like, it's it's great. Lua's awesome. So loads of people in the last year have moved from Vim 8 to NeoVim because they ha- it was a breaking change. They had to, all of their configuration, all of their scripts, everything was going to have to be ported to work with Vim 9. Okay. So a bunch of people said, if this is a breaking change and I've got to redo everything, I don't want my horse hitched to this wagon of custom, you know, small batch organic language of, of Vim script 9. This project over here, they're just using Lua. So, so the core team, First of all, they rimraft a bunch of directories in the product. So there's a bunch of stuff they don't have to support anymore. Second of all, for the Vim, for the scripting, for the customization, they just said plug in Lua. So that's a whole that's a whole mess of other stuff mm-hmm. that the core maintainers don't have to think about anymore. <laughs> it's Lua. It does Lua stuff. We just plugged it in and we got we've moved on with our lives. We're focusing on the core product, core experience, not worried about these other details that really don't separate us, that really don't make us competitive. Nobody really cares what language you can fit it, configure your editor in, so why would I not use a language that I don't have to build that everybody already knows? Like, it was it was a stupid, dumb mistake. Um, and so there's actually quite a bit of backlash. There's, there were a lot of people that dropped off the, the pure Vim world um, for NeoVim because, again, the, the things were going to break anyway. And, so it's, and, and the mentality there was like, well, I have an opportunity to make a breaking change I could simplify the world or I could continue to steep in this complexity. Mm. And lots, I agree with lots of other people that think that the way wrong decision was made there. Um, so what do you think? So, so you think that the Vim team made a mistake and, mm-hmm. and so oh, yeah. you would be one of these ones. You mentioned it earlier that you, you, you use this Neo Vim now. Yeah. Okay. So what, Okay, so that's what you think. What should the Vim team have done then instead? The Vim team should have pulled in, whether it was NeoVim or MicroPython or C++. I don't care. They, that, like, you, make, you have your own custom language processing system here that you are maintaining. It doesn't actually, like, nobody really cares what the syntax of that is, right? Mm -hmm. But the point is you're making a breaking change. So you have an opportunity to reduce the scope of your project, which Mm -hmm. could make you more focused on the things that you actually care about. Simplifies your life, simplifies your life, simplifies your consumer's lives. Exactly. And so so whether it's Lua or something else, I don't, like, the, 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 the thing doesn't really matter. What mattered is we double down on this custom esoteric language that doesn't add value. And that's, right. that's the point. It distracts right. the core team without adding value to the end user. And so no thanks. Right. 
and what in another couple of years we're going to make another breaking change to this custom like those those thoughts crop up and so it's like nope i'm just going to port i got to do a bunch of i got to do a bunch of of groundwork anyway to port all of this config i'm just going to move it into something that's that has a healthy direction as far as governance goes and uh, you know there are arguments on the other side. Oh, yeah, Vim script. It's so great. It's mostly reverse compatible. Blah, blah. I, I, I hear the arguments again. Send your hate mail to slash dev slash null. Uh, but it's just an example where a lot of people, and I agree with the general consensus of what I think is a consensus, that this was really stupid to double down. You ha you're making a breaking change. For years, you have been maintaining reverse compatibility. Everybody knows that struggle. We all feel that pain when you have to be reverse compatible. Um, but when you're at a point where you can make a breaking change and you don't take that opportunity to simplify everyone's lives, uh, I'm going to go somewhere else. Yeah. Why, why would you, why would you do that? Has anyone, um, it's hard to measure in, you know, market impact with open source projects, especially something with the legacy of a Vim have, oh, any, yeah, I have any major distros talked about dropping Vim in favor of Neo or some alternative yet? Uh, I don't know if any of the distros have moved. I mean, Vim. It's 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 everywhere because it's lightweight. I don't it's, I don't necessarily yeah, see like pretty much anything. I like I don't see Debian ten saying, right. "Yeah, we're going to use NVim instead." Um, right. Because the reality is, uh, I, a lot a lot of people don't use the editor in their system. They don't know how to. Uh, Vim is uh, it's like cocaine. Nobody knows how to quit. Right. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> so a lot of people they're just going to install whatever editor they want. To. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't think there's much value. But if like if I'm creating a uh, if I'm creating a distro now, I, I might think about the default choice. But it's it's so simple. It's so easy. It's so you know. It I, was I don't a, think it's an obvious. It, it was it was a, an obvious simplicity play that they just completely wow. sidestepped over and, and then capitalized on. What, it, did yeah. anyone did did anyone? Did they solicit for comments before they did it? Like getting feedback or anything like that? Or was this? I'm sure there was it? discussion on the mailing list and stuff. I don't, I don't follow it that close. I'm not like a hardcore in the, in the community. I, I'm, I'm a user. I don't. How, how high in the ivory tower do you have to be to be, to, to be on the mailing list for Vim? Like my goodness, I, like how deep I have do the you pleasure. have to be? So, <laughs> but but here's the thing though I have the, I have the pleasure of uh, working with somebody who's actually got a commit in Vim uh, ooh, for oh, specialized ooh, ooh. specialized platform support. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> that is neat. That is very neat. But I think it just going back to the where we started. Simplicity, man. It's the name of the game. It's always worth yeah. it. So this has been episode number 102 of the Refactor podcast. If you have thoughts on simplicity, uh, if you want to tell us whether you think Vim or NVim is the better editor, uh, if you the word Emacs is in your message, I will auto-delete it uh, as a just standing policy. Uh, yeah, we'd love to know, though, if you have any, any examples of the simplicity coming back to bite you in the rear. Uh, you can uh, hit us up. Uh, you can send those to feedback at refactor.work. Uh, we've got... A nice, lovely website there. Yes, as Vanna White is demonstrating, if you're watching the video, the video tubes, uh, full archives, show notes, uh, back episodes, recommendations on refactor.work. Uh, you can find more of me online at chris.tonkinson.com and more Frank online at hotcoles, K-O-E-H-L-S.com. Again, right there in the video feed. And again, this has been episode number 102 for the Refactor podcast, recorded April 21st, 2023. Thanks, Frank. Always a pleasure, buddy.